My name's Alan Moore. I write comics. When I started in comics four or five years ago, we didn't get no respect. It was a case where comics were seen as a, a juvenile medium where they were throwaway items. They were just cheap, four-color trash. That's changed. Over the last four or five years, you've had comics done on every subject from sort of homosexual rights to the Holocaust in the Second World War. The range of subject matter has, has widened immensely. It, we are actually dealing with adult stories now. So listen here, you dandified get. Just who the hell do you think you are? I'm Alan Moore. I'm a comic book messiah for the 1990s. And having risen from my humble terrorist street origins and having survived my tenure as one of the Dole Q millions, I've now become a successful small businessman of no mean repute. And I believe that this is the face of success in Mrs. Thatcher's Britain. You mean somebody actually pays you? You make a living out of all this? What the hell do you do? I do comics. I do, well, any sort of writing pertaining to comics. Comic writer, then. You just write comics. Oh, I write comics, and I consider that to be as worthy as any other form of endeavour. You wouldn't have said to Stravinsky that he just did music. Oh, so it's art, is it? You're a purveyor of culture. Well, what is this art that we should be thanking you for, then? Yeah, I'd say it was art. Comics, on the other hand, are a little bit better than most art because any kid who's got 30 pence in his pocket, 40 pence, can go down to the corner news agents and buy a piece of work that people have put a lot of honest endeavour into. It's not something that you have to have a sort of a charge account to appreciate. It's not something that you need a vast education in the classics to appreciate. It's something that is within reach of anybody. There is a red and angry world Red things happen there. The world eats your wife, eats your friends, eats all the things that make you human. And you become a monster. And the world just keeps on eating. The original Swamp Thing was portrayed as a man who somehow had turned into this weird hybrid plant creature. When I took over in 82, I decided to change it around. What I did was to make it a plant with delusions of grandeur, a plant that had somehow managed to convince itself that it was a human being. And having done that, I found that I'd got a character with possibilities that went far beyond those of the general mainstream of comics characters. The issues that Swamp Thing deals with are ones that are very rarely touched upon in other comics. I stand in an orchard of street signs and parking meters. From across the wilderness city, the wind blows fragments of music, percussive, robotic, distant. My consciousness seeps out through the filaments and shoots. In Coventry, the residence protection group creep through an overgrown department store, bristling with guns and tension. In the cosmetics department, an escaped tiger treads carefully through the spilled lipsticks. In one episode of Swamp Thing, we had an entire tropical rainforest bursting up through the streets of New York and smothering the city in vegetation. In the resultant chaos and carnage, all of the animals escaped from the local zoo so that you have parakeets 
roosting on top of street lamps and escaped tigers padding through the cosmetics department of a local chain store. What we were trying to suggest is that even though mankind can cover nature and smother the wilderness with a layer of concrete and cement, even though mankind can erect huge, powerful and impressive looking buildings, that underneath our feet, underneath the buried pipes and the buried cables, nature is still there. The wilderness is still there. And though man might boast of having conquered nature, that's not the case. For if nature were to shrug or to merely raise its eyebrow, then we should all be gone. since the Industrial Revolution. We've had a situation where you almost get mankind pitted against the environment. If you hear the way that people have talked about the relationship between man and nature, it's been in terms of man triumphing over nature, of man beating back nature and imposing his own will upon the natural world. We are incredibly arrogant about the planet that we're living on. We somehow assume that we can do anything to the world and it will always be there and it will always look after us and that's not the case. It's okay ignoring that stuff because it's too depressing or too frightening. It's okay ignoring wiping out of various species because well, you know, I mean, what's a panda or two between friends? Do the blue whales really matter to us that much? This organism that we're living on, this planet, is so incredibly finely balanced that whatever befalls the earth before now I'm going to read you a cautionary favour. I want you to listen to this intently, alright? So that it will hopefully improve your loathsome table manners. This is a story about a boy called Timothy Tate, okay? Yeah. This is the tale of Timothy Tate. A child too vile to contemplate. Obese, belligerent and rude, young Timmy was obsessed by food. Whole sides of beef and legs of mutton could not appease this little glutton. He'd wolf down trifles by the score, lick clean his plate and scream for more. As if afflicted by a curse, his appetites grew more diverse. Despite his parents' frosty stares, he'd often gnaw through legs of chairs. He'd munch with unashamed glee through carpets and upholstery and household pets too slow to flee would often vanish utterly. The parents of his friends in fear forbade their offspring to go near, lest they should end up as a feast for this demented little beast. He stalked alone, shunned by his peers in verdant woodlands growing near, and at the tremor of his tread, the timid forest creatures fled. One evening, as he dined on twigs, a sound disturbed this prince of pigs, and looking up, saw something bright descending from the starry night. The glowing disc dropped from the sky towards a leafy glade nearby, and from its hatch, as Timmy hid, a brace of curious creatures slid. Who knows from what dim, distant star this puzzling pair had journeyed far, but Tim, his beady eyes alert, had but one thought, which was dessert. The comics code in America has had some quite specific laws drawn up about how to treat things like violence and sex in comics. It's, I suppose, a precursor of the Rambo mentality, where you can show horrific violence happening, hot lead flying everywhere, nobody gets scratched. And I've had people 
attack my books because they show a childbirth or because they show violence realistically with the blood because they show human sexuality hopefully realistically because they show human politics realistically and I've had people saying this is destroying the innocence of childhood you know so how can you push this sort of depressing sordid real world filth down the mouths of our kids I mean the main thing that seems to irritate them seems to me to be political in that they want us to show superheroes and other comic characters as perpetual boy scouts. They don't want us to show a world in which authority can ever be corrupt or in which anything ever goes wrong. And the main thing that they cite as a reason for this is that it is harmful to the small and vulnerable minds of children, which obviously I'm a parent myself. I mean, I've got Leah and Amber. And basically my feeling is, in, is that the world that we have been careless enough to leave laying around for our children to inherit is a place which is sometimes hostile, which is sometimes dangerous, which has got a lot of very frightening edges to it. And the only way that I can help my children, the only real sort of chance that I can give them of securing their emotional and physical and psychological survival is to actually tell them about the stuff that's going on in the world. If there are sort of nuclear pollutants and poisons laying around, let's tell them about that. If there are psychopaths lurking upon every street corner, they should know. I don't think that it does children any service to present them this artificial, pastel-coloured Care Bear world in which everybody is friendly, everybody wants to hug each other. Listen, pally boy, there's people who fought in Dunkirk in the last war, and if you ask them about all of this, they'd think that it was a load of bollocks. I wouldn't say that. Recently, I've been working with a group called the CCCO in America, which is helping conscientious objectors. Maybe if there'd been people doing comics like the one that we're intending to do, which will be working with actual servicemen, giving their memory of what real life was like in the forces, maybe if there'd been more people back then who were able to point out just what the reality of warfare was, maybe some of those people who were at Dunkirk would have more limbs or fingers than they had now, or less dead friends. Oh, well, in that case, forgive me, not just bollocks then, subversive bollocks, is that the case? It seems to me that anything these days which is slightly to the left of Genghis Khan is immediately labelled subversive. If in our schools children are taught that there shouldn't be antagonism and disharmony between black kids and white kids, if they're taught that it's perhaps not the nicest thing in the world to shout abuse at homosexuals in the street, this is immediately labelled as subversive and a danger to the fabric of our great nation. If in this current time tolerance and sensitivity of any kind are labelled loony left or subversive, then I would be quite proud to be considered a subversive. We did an episode of Swamp Thing entitled The Nuke Face Papers, which dealt with this horrible irradiated wino called Nuke Face who used to drink nuclear sludge instead of methylated spirits. And we'd have him walking through the swamps, leaving luminous blue footprints wherever he trod, and the fruit would be growing riper and rotting and falling off the trees as he passed. At the end of the story, we have him waking up after uh, most of the other characters believe that he's dead, but uh, in fact, he's just been sleeping off a hangover. And we have him rise to his feet and realize that he's got no more of the nuclear waste, which he needs to sustain him. So we have him stumbling off into the bayous, just this wrecked and sort of debilitated figure and he's saying i know that there's some more of it out there somewhere and if i have to look 
All over this country, I'm going to find it. If I have to look in, in every state, in every neighborhood, in every street, I'm going to find it. And then he walks off into the bayou, just shambling, leaving the dead grass behind him, poisoning everything he touches. And he says, Heads up, America! Here I come! When we did that episode to underline the threat, we had actual newspaper clippings blowing through the swamp that we'd taken from various newspapers that we'd read concerning nuclear waste spillages, steam escapes and things like that. Particularly, we used a lot of clippings from the test areas in Utah where the Americans got their atom bombs. Uh, these were clippings from school teachers who'd said, uh, yes, I can remember the children coming in every morning to school and saying, did you see it, Mrs. Kelsey? Did you see the flash? And there were even more distressing ones from parents who said, yes, it was a, a big deal out here to watch the mushroom clouds glow up. We used to take the children out in their bathing costumes to watch. And after we published the issue, we got an awful lot of response from the readers saying it was a great story, but uh, all those cliffings you used, they, uh, they weren't real, were they? But of course, they were. And there's an old Chinese adage that if the artist does not feel excited, sad or happy when he's drawing the picture he has no right to expect the audience to feel those emotions you have to invest a work of art with a degree of intensity an intensity of feeling upon your part in order for that to communicate well come on i mean what makes you special i mean you're just a jerk like everybody else what makes you think that you know what's going on i know as well as anybody else is what is going on that all that anybody upon this particular planet can do, finding themselves surrounded by a web of information, much of which might be untrue, some of which may be valid, they have to make up their own mind. They have to think as much as they can about what is right, try to work out what courses of action seem to be the most pro-survival, which courses of action are going to make things a little bit better and certainly not hurt anybody else. As somebody who lived through the latter part of the 60s and the early 70s, obviously I believe that people's minds can be changed. That if you shout about something vehemently enough, it might make a difference. It is obviously a very big factor if you're planning a power plant, just what the political consensus is in the area where you're planning to build it. If there are an awful lot of people who are fanatically anti-nuclear, it might just be better to sort of leave that area alone and build it somewhere else. There is no doubt about it that this is an element in 1980s politics. That if you're going to have to go through a massive fight with local protest groups, you can add another half million onto your costs. It hits people in the wallet, which, I mean, like, I think that really it would be naive to expect to sort of uh, hit them in the conscience. What do the dead people think about on those long and sleepless nights beneath the ground when the tree roots press against their backs like wrinkles in the bedsheets? Do they watch the miniature dynasties of beetles unfold before their gaze and give names to them, repeating themselves often? Do they spend 50 years trying to remember what peaches smelled like? What do the dead think about? And what do they think of us? In Western society, we seem to be unduly terrified by the idea of death without ever realising that death is the only thing that gives life any of its sweetness. There's a wonderful anecdote about a Zen monk who found himself in the unenviable position of dangling from a cliff top by 
a single strawberry bush, which he was hanging onto for dear life, which had a single ripe, succulent strawberry hanging from the end of its branch. And just below this dangling monk, there was a savage man-eating tiger waiting for him to fall, leaping up around his feet, snapping and growling and clawing at him. And the monk hangs there and he thinks, shall I eat the strawberry now? And he does. And as he eats it, on the way down, it tastes absolutely perfect. She loves me, making tiny measured cries as if slowly immersed in water that's too icy or too hot, her fingers scrabble, unleash dogs upon my part green back, shredded and crushed, small leaves and petals fall, she loves me not. I am the limpet armoured rock, she is the tide, the white foam streaming down her neck, her shoulders, sea and shore, we clash together, fall asunder, clash together, fall, she loves me. There is a tender junction where the worlds of plant and animal converge. I am the veldt. Her muscles flow across me like a herd of sleek and leaping ibex. And she's howling like a zoo. She's screaming like a forest fire. She loves me not. Her world and mine locked into a collision orbit, spinning faster, winding tighter, desperate for our final impact, our sublime apocalypse. And oh, and oh, and oh, and oh, and oh, she loves me. In the course of doing Watchmen, what we tried to do was to set up a fabulous analogy for the way that life actually is in the 1980s. It's the fears, obsessions, hopes, and aspirations of myself as writer and Dave as artist, translated into very Baroque, fabulous terms and people in costumes. It's a sort of a little morality play. I think the problem is in the 80s that everybody feels so impotent. And that is a perfect excuse for never attempting to do anything. Consequently, what I found I had to do was to actually examine some of these fears and phobias and see what it was about them that frightened me. And one of the things that hangs heavily over the heads of everybody is the nuclear issue. Because for the first time, there is a strong possibility of everybody dying on the same day. And I think that it's not stretching a point too far to say that if every concept you've ever loved, if every ideal you've ever cherished, every person, every institution could be completely leveled and wiped away as if it had never been within the next four minutes, then what wouldn't you do? When you see the whole world geared up for that sort of act of mass destruction, then a Charles Manson or a Richard Speck or a Yorkshire Ripper becomes the merest bumbling act. It doesn't even matter whether we ever fire these missiles or not, they are having their effect upon us now because there are a generation growing up who cannot see beyond the final exclamation mark of a mushroom cloud. There are a generation who can see no moral values that do not end in a crackling crater somewhere. Alan Moore left school at the age of 17. His first job was hacking up sheep for the co-op. It was a good insight into life for a teenager, and he soon moved on to become a toilet cleaner, mixing with the flotsam of society. Exact details of his movements become hazy at this point. We know Alan had delusions of adequacy as an artist and started drawing a strip for sounds where he discovered how to move pictures in sequence, tell a story. 
He began writing scripts for 2000 AD, where he met DR and Quinch, two emotionally deprived characters with behavioral aberrations. Life with them was Wild Man. At this stage, he also had visions of Marvel Man, Bo Jeffrey's everyday tales of paranormal townsfolk, and V for Vendetta, a survivor of fascist concentration camps and the 1998 nuclear war. It was an awesome sequence of events. Alan later became obsessed with Halo Jones, an ordinary girl just trying to survive trips to the supermarket in the outer galaxies. Their relationship is still close. Her influence probably led to his concern with world events, especially the ecology debate, which resulted in his fascination with Swamp Thing. However, somehow things became a little soured, and Alan took up with Raw Shark, a mentally deranged vigilante hunted by police and criminals alike. Who knows where Alan's talent will take him next? There are rumors of dinners with Malcolm McLaren, and a large bearded man has been spotted in the Tainties area. Alan, do you think that your um, comics are escapist, or do you think that they're social comment? Well, I don't, I don't like the idea of art as escapism. I mean, there's an, a, a lot of that. I mean, Dallas Dynasty, stuff like that. I'd rather do something that actually grab people by the lapels and force their nose into sort of what's going on in society. So I try to do stuff that's going to sort of wake people up a little bit and bring the issues home. Yeah. Well, what kind of issues have you dealt with? Because most people imagine comics are just filled with um, people going smack and biff. Well, there's an awful lot of men in skin tight costumes sort of trying to arm each other, you know, which is, is great, it's fun, you know, but. The stuff that I've mainly dealt with, I suppose in Halo Jones, which is uh, the collection that's just out at the moment, that's got a lot about unemployment in it. You know, you've got all of the unemployed of America sort of shunted off to this floating hoop, you know, off the, te off the peninsula of Manhattan, so that if a wave washes them into the Pacific, then there'll be that much less sort of unemployment benefit to pay out, you know. That's, that's the basic setup. I mean, other sort of things, just about the general sort of urban decay and women and stuff like that, racial issues, things like that. I mean, it's nice to have an audience where they're young enough so that you can actually get a message over to them, you know. Now, you work a lot for American um, comics, don't you? Why do you think that there are, that they employ English people, oh, in fact, very good. Uh, why do you think they employ English writers to do American comics? Well, it's Beatlemania, really. You know, I mean, like, that they think of us as being terribly cultured and uh, just, just <laughs> generally more civilised than them, you know, and sort of so... Basically, I mean, I started to win Eagle Awards over here, which is sort of like the comic book equivalent of the Oscar, but there's only about two or three hundred British fans voting for them. We know that, but the Americans don't. They think we're, we're really famous, so they sort of uh, snap us all up and, you know, we're all part of the brain drain and we've sort of, uh, we're all working over the other side of the Atlantic now. Now I have here a fan. A fan. A fan. Alan, where did you get the idea for Louise Cannibal? In Halo Jones. Well, yeah. I just, I just wanted. He's an eight-foot-tall character with tusks, basically. He's a sort of a war general, and I just wanted somebody who was sexy but sinister. You know, just somebody who was frightening and had these huge tusks sticking out, but but was, you know, had his, his more romantic elements as well. I don't know where he came from, you know, but I was just sitting there and doodling, and you, you know, you draw the tusks and you think that looks good, you know. So now, that's probably where it um, uh, One of the things that struck me was that a lot of people spend an enormous amount of money on your comics. It's not sort of 10p, is it? They're sort of £22 for an only a three-year-old yeah. issue. It, it horrifies me. I mean, there's, there's people who actually treat this as an investment. You know, I mean, I think the Wall Street Journal noticed that sort of the best investment a couple of years ago was not gold, but copies of the X-Men, because they're just appreciating in value that much, and it's ridiculous. One of the most revealing 
aspects of my researches into magic and the occult has been the discovery that actually magic has quite a lot in common with fiction and with fantasy. We almost get to the notion that the two are pretty well interchangeable. I think that Alistair Crowley even mentioned that the language of magic is more about language than it is about magic. The idea of a grimoire, a dark book of spells. Grimoire is simply another way of spelling grammar. Uh, according to Crowley, to cast a spell is simply to spell. When we think of the fact that most of the magic gods that various cultures have created or worshipped in the past, characters like Hermes, Mercury, Thoth, these are not only the gods of magic, they are also the scribe gods. They are the gods of writing. To some degree, the reason that I involved myself with magic was partly because as a writer, I was feeling that something to do with the territory of writing itself, the way that anybody who's been writing for a, a, a given length of time will probably have anecdotes to tell you. Strange little coincidences, things that they wrote and then something very similar happened to them, perhaps a day, perhaps a month, perhaps 10 years later. That there are these odd little incidents that tend to build up and that you tend to shove in a filing drawer just marked weird stuff. And because you have nowhere else to put them. You know, there is no other compartment within your life, no other context into which you can fit these strange little anomalous events, these little synchronicities. And eventually, as with myself, you might reach a point where you perhaps decide that the stuff in the drawer marked weird stuff is in fact the only important stuff. And that if you wish to progress as a writer beyond mere technique, then you might be advised to start looking at some of those events. This leads to a consideration of the relationship between fiction and reality. I started to come to the conclusion that fiction has an immaterial reality that is exactly equivalent to material reality. It is no less or more real, it is simply different. For example, we have a three-dimensional solid material chair, such as the one that I'm sitting in. This is real in material terms. Then we have the idea of a chair. The idea of a chair is perhaps more important than any single individual chair, and yet the idea of a chair exists nowhere in the physical universe. It cannot be measured in a laboratory. It is completely outside the realm of science, as are all of our thoughts, all of our internal events. 
To some degree, the things that happen in our heads are the only things that we can ever know with any certainty. And yet, these are precisely the things that science is, by its very nature, completely incapable of dealing with. Science, I think, would very often rather disprove consciousness on some basic level, would rather demonstrate that consciousness and awareness were a byproduct of, say, our biology, because then they would not have to deal with the problem of what uh, Kerstler and others referred to as the ghost in the machine. Consciousness is a ghost, a spook, a phantom that somehow spoils the logic of this perfectly balanced clockwork universe, this worldview that we have created for ourselves. Now, to me, if you're going to try and come up with a new way of talking about consciousness, then that is precisely what you need to do. You have to come up with a new way of looking at the basic phenomenon. It will not be scientific, it cannot be scientific. But for me, what it came down to was understanding the world inside our heads, the world of consciousness as a world, as a space, as a kind of space that had its own rules, had its own unique properties, and was just as demonstrably real as the three-dimensional physical space which we inhabit. Starting to consider the nature of that space tends to lead you to consider previous attempts to define consciousness in spatial terms. You could think of Plato with his world of ideal forms, something that exists nowhere in physical reality, but which, according to Plato, must exist, must precede physical reality, must be this world of essences that all material form is merely a kind of distant echo of. There are other ideas. There is uh, Carl Jung's idea of a mass unconscious. Uh, this again is a sort of a, a place somewhere within our ancestral memory. There is Karl Popper, who talked of World 3. World 3 is a kind of hypothetical abstract space in which immaterial human constructions, ideologies, for example, Marxism, these are constructs that do not actually have a material form, but are nonetheless important and often sizable mechanisms in the world of ideas. To me, the world inside our heads, I gave it the working label of idea space. I believe that it can be treated as a space and that, yes, just as we each have our own private address in physical space, just as we have our own private house or flat or room, then so too do we have our own private area of consciousness. This is the area that we generally label as ourself. However, if you go outside your flat or house or room, 
then you'll find that the area beyond its walls is communal. I think this may also be true of the kind of conceptual space that I'm talking about. That if you wander out the back door of your mind and personality, wander down its back alleyways, you might find yourself in a deeper area of that mental space than the one that you are usually accustomed to. You might find that there are different rules which seem to apply in these deeper areas of consciousness. You might find that there are people, creatures, things living there, flora and fauna. And to some degree, this is central to all my ideas of magic. And by magic, I mean basically what everybody means by magic. I mean a rabbit out of a hat. I mean something emerging demonstrably from nothing. So to a certain degree, in that I would include our physical universe emerging from a single point in a quantum vacuum. I would include any human thought or idea or work of art which demonstrably starts out nowhere, starts out in the silence of our minds. First there is no idea, then there is the flickering of an idea, then there is a fully realised idea, and then finally we have a physical artefact which we can hold in our hands, we have a book, we have a painting. This to me is a magical act, any act of creation is a magical act, which is probably why I tend to express most of my magical thinking in terms of creative acts. If I can turn it into a piece of writing or a set of images or a performance so that other people can share the information concerning that realm then to me that is part of what a magician's job is. It is almost that the magician acts as a travel guide or um, an overseas reporter, if you like, from this phantasmagoric platonic realm of the human mind and the human imagination.